I'm going to try to end up not on America's Funniest Home Videos for tripping over all this stuff up here this morning. Glad to see you. My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Hopefully, you've got your Bibles with you. Um, if you did not bring a Bible with you, we've got some on the table out here. If you're still wandering around, uh, feel free to grab one of those. Uh, they're our gift to you this morning. Uh, we are going to be uh, in a lot of Bible this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, it's good to see you. Uh, let me pray for us as we get going, and then we will jump right on in. Father God, it is a continual privilege uh, to gather here uh, as your children, to surrender ourselves to your word, uh, to depend upon your spirit, to transform us in the here and now, in our souls and our hearts and our desires into that of your son Jesus. And so Lord, we ask that you do what only you can do and that you take the very little bit of time that we have together this morning and you use your spirit through your word and, and, and whatever feeble attempt that I've got to make it clear, uh, use that this morning to change hearts, to change souls, to change spiritual taste buds. Uh, we want to reflect your son. Uh, we want to live lives here in this city uh, that make your name known, that make you look as great and as wonderful and as satisfying as you really are. Uh, this is our desire. Your will be done. Your kingdom come right here, right now in us, in this place. We ask these things, Lord, for your glory, for your name's sake, because of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good to see you. Uh, how many of you, just a quick count, I'm just curious, how many of you are reading along with us in our Lent guide? How many of you have, have used that or are reading through that? Anybody? Yeah, is it helpful? Is it helpful? Yeah? This is the second Sunday of Lent. You're in the second week of Lent, um, and I would encourage you, it's not a... Uh, it's not a new rule or a new legalistic thing we're trying to get in place. If, if you haven't jumped in with us, uh, take the time this week to go on the site, download the guide, and, and read along with us. You don't have to do it for the entire time. You, you don't have to think you missed time. You've got to make up for time. Uh, it's just a tool that we've created to use uh, this time, this part of the year, this part of the calendar intentionally to try to understand what things have captured our hearts, what things have, have continued to draw our, our desires and the eyes of our heart away from Jesus and away from his sufficiency and, and do work on that, to do work on that, to prepare ourselves for Easter, to prepare ourselves for the great story of the resurrection and redemption of Jesus. So this is week two. There's like four more weeks, I think. So grab the guide, read along with us, uh, use it in your community groups, uh, talk about what you're learning, what you're praying through, uh, how it's challenging you, uh, what it's showing you about yourself, and what you're learning about Jesus through the process. So enjoy it. It's for you. It's not something that we want you to or require you to do. It's a tool that we created, and hopefully it can, it can serve you. So um, that's my business announcement for the morning. Um, this morning, as we get into our, our next sermon on Ecclesiastes, uh, I was struck by something that I read last week as I was just studying the book. Um, by all accounts, a guy, uh, a young man in America uh, named Tom Brady. Do you know who he is? Are you familiar with Tom Brady? Uh, by all accounts, Tom Brady, as a young man in America, has pretty much everything in life going for him. And by all accounts, he is one of the wealthiest athletes that plays professional football in, alive today. Before he turned 30 years old, he had won three Super Bowls. He'd been MVP of the Super Bowl twice, named in numerous Pro Bowls not counting the awards that he won at the University of Michigan before he went into the NFL. He's smart. He's one of the best-looking men walking around the world today. He's unbelievably wildly successful at what he does. He's been awarded in every aspect of his life. 
He dates beautiful women and has now married one and has children. And by all accounts, we look at a man like Tom Brady and we try, if you're a man and honest, to hate him. But by all accounts, he is one of the most successful people, young men in this country. And two years ago, he was doing an interview with 60 Minutes during the season when they chased the perfect record, when the Patriots were going for that 16-0 record to win the Super Bowl. He did an interview with 60 Minutes in the middle of the season, and he said something that was unbelievably amazing. But considering who he is, what he has done, what he has accomplished, and what is standing before him in the years to come, this is what Tom Brady said about it all. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, Tom, this is what it's all about. You've reached your goal, your dream. I've succeeded in my life. But I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't it. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I love playing football, and I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts of me that I'm trying to find. By all accounts, the most successful and one of the most envied men in this country. And he says, this can't be what it's all about. This is the angst, the struggle, the frustration that the book of Ecclesiastes is articulating. And this, Tom Brady articulated better than I ever could, is the question that Ecclesiastes is gonna deal with this morning. Is there more than this? And there's got to be more than this. Is this really what it's all about? Is this really all there is? When, Ecclesiastes is gonna ask this morning, when will you be satisfied? When will you be satisfied? And what is it do you think will bring you that satisfaction? Solomon is gonna take us upon the most comprehensive human quest for meaning, purpose, joy, and satisfaction in this human life, in this existence under the sun that we talked about this week, last week that's ever been accomplished, that's ever even been attempted. And his conclusions as we go may surprise you, but if we listen, if we do the hard work to listen to what he says, I think we may actually never be the same again. You may be surprised. You may struggle at what he has to say. But if we listen, you won't be the same. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're gonna jump into chapter one where we ended last week and we're gonna continue on and we're just gonna read and I'm gonna talk and we're gonna read and I'm gonna talk and we're gonna trust God to make some sense out of this. I hope you brought your lunch. Uh, we got a late start this morning, so um, we've got lots of Bible to do. So Ecclesiastes chapter one, we're gonna start in verse 12 and we're gonna read verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So let me get you caught up to where we are in this story and what's happening here. Remember last week we said that the book of Ecclesiastes, if you think about it, you can think about it like a good episode of the Dukes of Hazard, where there's this narrator that comes in and tells you what's going on. He's gonna tell you what's happening and what to be aware of, and then the action's gonna take place with, with Bo and Luke and, and Uncle Jesse and Daisy and Roscoe and, and Boss Hogg, and, and the action's gonna take place. And every time they take a break, the narrator's gonna kind of sum it up and he's gonna introduce it again, and the action's gonna take place. 
And the narrator is going to come into the end and, and kind of sum up the conclusions of what happened in the episode. That's what's going to happen in Ecclesiastes. And, and last week, the narrator began to tell us what we're going to encounter on this, in this book and on this quest that Solomon went on. That Solomon is going to take all of the best faculties of his mind, all of his, all of his resources, everything at his disposal as the wisest and wealthiest king ever to live on, the, on earth, and he's going to apply them with great gusto to figuring out what, if anything, under the sun can bring meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction. And this is what the narrator now is telling us Solomon is going to do, and he's going to remind us in a second, and we're going to hear from Solomon in just a minute. He is going to apply his heart, and he's going to go after all of the illusions, all of the things that we chase, all of the things that we think can bring us satisfaction, all of the pursuits, all of the pleasures all of the goals that we come up with in our life to think this will give me what it is I'm missing. If I can just do this, have this, achieve this, be this, then it will all be worth it. Then I can rest. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. This is what Solomon is going to attempt. And he says something here. Last week, we, we unpacked some big terms. So, so go back and listen to it because I don't have time to go through it this morning. But there's another big phrase that we're gonna see in this section and we're gonna see throughout the book. He says, all of it, all of the quest, all of the search, all of the experience, all of the work, all that I tried, he said, it's striving after the wind. It's striving after the wind. Literally, that means it's like trying to shepherd or herd the wind all of his efforts to suck out of the things of life the meaning and the purpose that he thinks he needs ultimately accounted to nothing than trying to shepherd the wind in the direction that we wanted it to go. My buddy Tyler Jones down in Raleigh had a great image for this as we were talking a couple of days ago. I was telling him I was preaching this through and he said years ago when he preached Ecclesiastes, someone told him that uh, this striving after the wind, this shepherding the wind was like watching a little kid try to chase down all the bubbles you blow out of a bubble wand in the wind constantly chasing after, trying to catch them all, but getting nothing but frustrated because every time he would grab one, it would pop and there were more over here. And so they run around chasing, trying to grab. And, and we look like foolish children chasing all of the things in life, trying to grab a hold of them, thinking that we can get them all. And if we were to get them, then we've got it, only to have it pop in our hand. This is what Solomon is saying that he's found at the end of his quest. Look at verse 15. Here's why he says it's frustrating. What's crooked cannot be made straight, and what's lacking can't be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had a great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly, and I perceive that this is also but a striving after the wind. It's trying to catch those bubbles like a little kid in the wind, only to have them pop as soon as I were to think I was close. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. Here's why it's like trying to chase those bubbles. Here's why it's all frustrating. Here's why the search the narrator is saying that we're going to look at as Solomon unpacks it ultimately comes to the conclusion that this is just vanity, enigmatic. We can't figure it out. I don't know what the point is. It's because we think that we can straighten out what we'll find later God has made crooked. We have this illusion Solomon is talking about here and he's gonna unpack later in, in the weeks to come. We have this illusion of control about our life. 
We tend to think about our life in such a way that we think we can actually grab a hold of all the circumstances in our life and all the things in our life, and if we can just control them, get our hands around them, apply our minds and our thoughts to them, get them to do what we want them to do, then my life would be manageable. When my life is manageable and I've got control of my world, then I can figure out what the point is and then the meaning of it all can make sense and I can get out of it what I want to get out of it, so I'm going to do everything I can to grasp and control all the circumstances around me. And underneath that illusion is the presupposition that I ought to be able to do that, isn't it? Don't you think you ought to be able to control your world, control all the aspects of your life. If you just get the right plan, if you just think about it hard enough, if you just think it through correctly, you can get all the ducks to line up in a row. Then, then it will all come. I mean, think about the energy and the intensity and the effort that you spend trying to manage your life, trying to manage your house, trying to manage your kids, trying to manage your laundry, trying to manage your job, trying to manage your coworkers, trying to manage your car, trying to manage your house, trying to manage your lawn, all of the effort that you spend trying to get control of the world around you and you've bought into this illusion that you ought to be able to control it all. You ought to be able to get it all to line up and do exactly what you want it to do. You ought to be able to get out of it what you think you should because we don't like chaos, we don't like surprises, and we don't like things to come up and blow our little plan apart. We don't like to lose control. And we live under this illusion that we can actually control it. And that if we applied ourselves hard enough, we could get it to do what we wanted to do. Now, Solomon's not saying here, and he's not going to say later in the book when we get to it more specifically, that order is wrong. That rules are wrong. That structure is wrong. Well, it reflects an unbelievably beautiful characteristic and aspect of God. But thinking that those things... The order, the rules, the structure can bring us what it is we want. Thinking that our control and allowing our control and our desire for control to rob us of passion and joy in this life right now, that's wrong. That's the illusion. That's missing the boat. And here's the rub. This is what Solomon's getting after right here. You can't fix what's crooked. You can't fix what's broken. You know why? Because you're broken. You can't fix what's broken because you're broken. You can't fix what's broken, Solomon's going to say later in this book, because God has said it this way. And you could never grab everything and get it all to do what you want because in yourself, you don't have all that it takes to actually make it happen. You're lacking the very things that the world around you needs. You're lacking the very thing in yourself that you most desperately need. And so we live under this illusion that we can just control it and that we ought to be able to. And Solomon busts the bubble of our illusion of control and says, you just can't do it. Because the more wisdom you get in this life about how to bring order and out of chaos and to structure this thing to get what you want, the more you know about how it works, the more frustrated you get. The wiser you get about understanding that you can't control this thing, the more frustrating you actually get because you realize, I can't do it. My life is like herding cats. Here's how this works out in my house. We were talking about this just this other day as Aaron and I were talking about our life, talking about Ecclesiastes, and talking about what it looked like in our world. Uh, we get caught by this illusion all the time. I mean, all of us do. There's not a, an illusion in this book that we're gonna talk about that all of us don't suffer under, under to some degree. How it looks in a small slice of our world, it, it looks like this. We, we tend to labor under this illusion uh, that we can control our physical health, our physical vitality 
Both of us are pretty healthy people. We were into healthy stuff when we got married, a very active, um, competitive most of our life. Uh, we enjoy that kind of stuff. It's the kind of stuff we like to read and learn about, and it's the kind of stuff we like to apply our minds and our, our wisdom to as to how we should take care of ourselves. And, and since we've been married, uh, we've probably never been more unhealthy. Um, and the harder we try to apply ourselves uh, to thinking that we can actually fix what's wrong and that we should be able to control how our body responds to life in a very sinful and fallen world, the more frustrated we actually get because the more we realize we can't actually do it. So the harder we actually try thinking we ought to be able to do it. And so we apply ourselves even stronger, even harder to try to fix what's going on and fix what's wrong. And, and here's the rub and here's where it went into high gear and here's where the illusion got a hold of us and we've had a hard time wrestling out of it. And it was really this book, I think, that God brought into picture uh, two years ago, uh, most of you know, some of you don't know, we gave birth to a son who, who died eight hours after he was born of absolutely unexplainable physical deformities. Genetic tests, we did them all. Nobody could figure out why it happened. There was no answer for why his body grew the way that it did. We went all over the place. The best children's hospitals in the country, they all turned us down for care. They couldn't figure it out. And he was born and there was nothing that we could do. And so after he died and we struggled through everything and, and all the process of losing a child and, and what that means and, and wrestling through all those things, this control, this illusion that we ought to be able to make that right, we ought to be able to live a life where that doesn't happen again, went into high gear without us even paying attention. And so we go to the craziest doctors and we eat the, the strangest things and, and we order our life in the strangest ways and here's what happens and this is the grace of God and we'll talk about how that is in just a minute when we get to the end. Here's the grace of God on this whole thing. In the last four months, probably at the height of this illusion, probably most deluded by the idea that we ought to be able to make that not happen again. The last four months, we've never been sicker in our entire life. Our eight-month-old has been on and off sick since October, and there's nothing we can do about it. The doctors haven't been able to make it better. We haven't been able to make it better. She's just a pitiful little mess. Our four-and-a-half-year-old, he's lost, he's under 40% hearing in both of his ears. They don't know why. They don't know why. They want to go in and do some kind of uh, surgeries to drain this and take this, hoping to give him relief, but they don't know why it happened. It just is. The Sunday before the, first, the last snowfall, when we had to miss those two weeks in a row, I lost my voice and came down with walking pneumonia. I've been sick the entire time. And last night, as we were thinking about this sermon this morning and, and processing, and she and I have been talking about the grace of God in all of this, and we'll get there in a minute. I'm on the sofa because my wife is sick in bed with our eight-month-old who's coughing and hacking and no reason and our son is doing the same thing in his bed. And I'm laying on the, on the sofa just thinking, wow, how deluded. How so much energy and passion and, and life has been expended to the illusion that we could actually control this thing. And that if we just did all of these things the way that we think we should, if we just applied our wisdom of what we could understand of what we know of this world, of all the things that we have learned from the people around us who we think are smarter than us in this thing and just get it just right, then these kind of things wouldn't happen. And it's like us chasing little bubbles in the air, running around like a two-year-old trying to capture it all, only getting frustrated because as soon as we think we've got it, it just pops. That's all I'm saying. It's an illusion. It's an illusion that will only leave you more frustrated, more disappointed, more vexed. It's like striving after the wind, chasing bubbles. He's going to unpack that one a little bit more as we keep going. That's going to be fun. That one did a doozy on us. The fun part's about to happen, though. You got your Bibles? Let's keep reading. 
because it's going to get really fun. Here's what Solomon's going to do. He's going to enter the picture now. The narrator's going to stop. I think it was Waylon Jennings and the Dukes of Hazard. I'm not really sure. Um, I like to picture it as Waylon Jennings. Um, the narrator's going to stop. Solomon's going to enter the scene, and here's what he's going to do. All those conclusions we talked about last week, all that we've talked about this morning, all the frustration, the vanity, the striving after the wind, he's going to unpack the journey that led him to those conclusions, and he's going to teach us some things that we've got to hear. He's going to teach us some things we've got to hear if we're going to actually experience the joy, the passion, the meaning, the purpose that he was so, so desperately trying to find with his own wisdom and with his own mind. Chapter 2. You ready? Verse 1. Solomon said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. This also was enigmatic. This also left me with nothing. What use is it? And I said of pleasure, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guiding me with wisdom. He tossed that in there for you. And how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during a few days of their life. Now, listen to what Solomon is doing. He said, just in case you doubt that I'm not going to be comprehensive in my quest for meaning, in my quest for purpose in this life under the sun, I'm gonna unpack for you in big pictures what I actually did. And remember what we said last week, and we'll say it a lot this morning, he did things in a way you could never do. He is gonna take your little party and he is gonna blow it up in a way that's preschool. Preschool compared to what he did. And he said, the first thing I did is I set my heart to search. I set my mind to search. Is there any meaning to be found in laughter, in comedy, if I could just laugh at the world around me, if I could just be as witty as, as Eddie Izzard or Seinfeld or Carlos Mencia or Dave Chappelle, if I could just live life of the Comedy Central, of the Comedy Channel, if I could just laugh at all that was going on around me, is that gonna make it all better? If I could just get a good wit, a quick wit and a jaded cynicism, if I could just brush by all the things that frustrate me in this life and all the disappointments in this life and all the injustices in this life, then maybe it will all be better but he said it was empty. It was vanity. It just couldn't do it. And then he said, okay, well, here's what I'm gonna do. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna test wine. I am going to drink, and I'm going to see if by drinking, I can drink the frustration away. College, huh? Solomon goes on this unbelievable adventure that makes What's, the, what's that show I saw the other day? I didn't see, I heard about it the other day. Um, the Jersey Shore. Pale. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You laughed. Pale in comparison. Solomon is going to throw the biggest, the loudest, the wildest parties probably that history has ever seen. And he is going to pursue this process and say, in this, in this, is there a way to make sense of what's going on? In this, is there a way to find meaning and purpose? Is this, is this the place where I can figure out what, what it's all about? But he said he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. It was just vanity. And so Solomon, you can kind of watch the progression. He's going to move from Comedy Central to, to MTV. He's going to move on to 
the home and garden show. And this is where probably a lot of people in here are. Listen to what he says, verse four. That didn't get it. Wine didn't get it. Comedy didn't get it. So I made myself great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests that I planted and the trees that are growing there. Remember the question at the beginning, is this all that there is? There's got to be, there's got to be more than this. Solomon built himself and his wives, that we'll talk about in a little while, houses. And I want you to keep this in mind because some of you have got some sweet houses. And some of you have put some time and some work and some sweat equity into your houses. And so I want you to get a picture of just how preschool your house really is. Solomon spent seven years building one of the great ancient wonders of the world, God's temple, Solomon's temple. Precious stones, gilded in gold, unbelievable structure. Do you know how long he spent building his own house? 13 years. 13 years with unlimited resources, Solomon spent building his house and then the houses of his wives. Your house, your house is like a doghouse in the backside of Solomon's place. And he didn't just build a house. See, there's some of you that are thinking, if I could just get the house right, you know, I don't need the rest of the stuff. I don't need the cars. I don't need the clothes. You know, I don't need the country clubs. I don't need all those things. If I could just get the house right, if we just had a little more space, if we could just stretch out a little bit more, maybe if we just didn't have a little more space, but maybe if we lived on this street, if we could just get out of where we are now and get to this street, then everything will be okay. Then I'll actually be happy. That's all I really want. It's not much, is it? Maybe a thousand more square feet coming off the back. Maybe an extra bathroom or half bathroom. You know, we've got kids, don't we? You know, the kids each have to have their own bathroom in their own room, right? I mean, what do kids do in the world if they don't have their own house, their own room, and their own bathroom? I mean, I'm not asking for a lot, just this place. Solomon built houses. Houses. And he said he didn't just build houses. That dude went out and dug unbelievable craters outside of Jerusalem, filled them full of water to irrigate the parks that he then planted for his own pleasure. Now, I've got gardening. I did gardening. Um, I'm not a very good gardener, but we've got gardens at our house because I like messing with it. Solomon went and planted orchards, and he went and planted vineyards, and he went and planted forests, and he went and developed parks. Some of you think if you could just get a little bit of a, a little further away, a little cleaner air. Got my own little garden to get some food from. You know, animals running around, no wireless signals, no cell phone towers. You don't laugh. That's our weirdness. That's our jam. We'd be happy if we could do that. We couldn't hear other people and we had no cell phones anywhere. That would make us happy. Solomon said, look, I, I went with the back 900 acres and I planted for myself something that you could never even conceive in your wildest dreams. And I did it for myself, he said. This is no community development project. He wasn't beautifying Jerusalem. He wasn't looking for a way to better the lives of the rest of the people in the area. He said, I built for myself houses, big houses, parks, big parks, 
dug big craters in the ground to water my parks. You can still go to Israel today and see the pools of Solomon, these empty craters that are out in the desert that he used to irrigate his little planting projects. Lest you think that he didn't try it as well as you could try it. He wants to dispel the illusion. He wants to unmask the myth that you might be the one to succeed where he failed. He said, I did it in a way that you could never do it. Then he said this, verse seven. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my own house. Solomon had an entourage. Solomon had a crew. All the people you watch on television, all the people that we look up to, all the people that are the heroes of this culture who have the big houses and the nice stuff and the big cars, they're nothing until they've got a crew. They're nothing until they've got a swarm of people around them to do the things for them, to keep up the things that they buy so that they can feel that they've actually made it. Listen to Solomon. He had a crew that had a crew that had a crew that had a crew that did the work that he didn't want to do. Do you get that? The Bible will record, we won't go through the detail, that Solomon had upwards of 35,000 people at his disposal. Now think about it. Some of you, I mean, some of you are getting excited. You had your own hair person, clothes person, shoot, shirt person, pant person, belt person, jacket person, fingernail person, toe person, cook, cleaner, cleaner. All these people had people working for them. So your cleaner didn't do the cleaning. He had a whole crew of cleaners doing the cleaning for him. Some of you get excited. If we could just have some, have some help, you know? Just the occasional help. It would all be good. I don't despise anything that I've got. Just, you know, give me some help. And you know you've made it when you've been able to do it. Solomon did it in a way that you will never, ever, ever be able to do. But some of you think, hey, if we could just get there, if we could just get it, that would make me happy. I would be happy. Would you be happy? I'd be happy. It'd be kind of fun. But keep going. He said, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who have been before me in Jerusalem. Now, he just didn't have a farm. He didn't just have forests and orchards. Solomon was world-renowned for his love of horses in particular. 1 Kings chapter 4, I believe it is, you'll find that Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots alone. You like horses. You like dogs. You like pets. That would be nice, wouldn't it? To have some pets, to have a nice little thing. 40,000 horses just for his chariots. He said, I had all the stuff. I had all the possessions. I had all the things, and those chariots were nice, I guarantee you. Those 40,000 stallions weren't pulling 40,000 weak chariots. His chariots were the real thing. Nobody else had chariots like Solomon, I can guarantee you that. He had possessions and wealth that was unimaginable, uncalculable. There's no way to even comprehend what Solomon had at his disposal. And he said, I invested myself in all of it. I mean, I'm going to try to get to the bottom of it and see what it can do for me. He said, I also gather for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Now, for some of you, just be honest, it will all be better. Really, honestly. 
It'd all be better if you just had some money. If you could just get rich, however you define rich, because your definition of rich changes every five years probably. Because you finally get where it is you think you need to go and you realize, yeah, you know, I think I need a little bit more. If I could just get rich, then I'd be happy. I mean, that would make all the difference in the world. Listen, Solomon had the wealth of nations being brought to him on ships. He was acquiring real estate over an entire kingdom. He wasn't getting summer homes and vacation homes and mountains. He was getting nations. He was getting land. He was getting gold. He was getting people. He was getting things that you could never even comprehend. Do you get the picture? Do we need to belabor the picture that Solomon is trying to paint? He has gone after all of the things and will continue to go after all of the things that we think we need to get the joy, the satisfaction, the meaning, and the pleasure that we so desperately want in this life. He says, I got singers, both men and women. He wasn't done. You download a song on your iPod for a dollar from iTunes and carry it around with you while you run or while you get in the car. Solomon went out and bought choirs. He went out and bought musicians, and they were at his beck and call wherever he was to sing whatever he wanted, and they would gather around him and go in before him and sing an entrance as he would walk into a place. And you think you're something because you got iTunes. Get whatever song you want. You don't have to buy the CD. You can just get this one song. Solomon would get the band. And he got for himself choirs just to sing of his glory, just to sing his praises, just to sing about him. This guy did it in a way that you can never, ever, ever do it. And then, probably what he's most famous for. He didn't just get himself choirs of men and women. He had many concubines, the delight of the children of man. How many wives did Solomon have? 700. How many concubines did Solomon have on record? 300. 1,000 women at Solomon's disposal. Resources absolutely unlimited. Crew to make those thousand women look however he wanted them to look. There wasn't a sexual appetite or desire that Solomon did not have the capacity to fulfill. There was not an experience in this that Solomon could not make happen like that. And the statistics will say that more than half of you in here try to recreate what he could do in a way that you could never imagine through pictures on a computer, stories, in a book, and a few of you bold enough, brazen enough, and arrogant enough to try it with someone else. And he said, I could do it in a way that you can never even comprehend. A thousand women to do whatever he wanted. Any time. I can't, that's, that's beyond my, that's even beyond my scope of comprehension. He did it. He did it. Look at verse nine. And he said, so I became great. Really? And I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Fame. If you're famous, it'd be better, wouldn't it? I mean, how do those little brats on the hills get so famous? I could do a web show. 
I mean, I could come up with an angle. You know, we're the only place probably in the history, I mean, I haven't studied this, so this could be a totally incorrect statement, but I would imagine we're probably one of the only cultures in the history of Western civilization where people can get famous for simply being famous. You realize that? Nine-tenths of the people that are on the covers of the magazines haven't done anything. They're famous because we put them somewhere to be famous. The reality television shows and the reality television stars, they've done nothing. They're famous, infamous, and now enviable by the majority of our culture simply for being famous. I, I don't know. It's unbelievably deluded. It is an unbelievably deceptive and dangerous illusion that we've caught ourselves up into in this culture. But some of us think if we could just be famous, then that would fix it all. Solomon says, I was great. I surpassed everyone in Jerusalem. Surpassed most in human history. And my wisdom remained with me. So he never lost track of what he was after. He wasn't after experience and pleasure for pleasure's sake. He wasn't after just doing things for the sake of doing them. He remembered why he was doing it all along. I was looking to see if there was anything in these things that could bring me what it was I really wanted, if there was really any meaning or purpose left over, if there's anything to gain, he said last week, from all these experiences. Uh, this is what I wanted. This is what I was after. And whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I kept my heart, from my heart no pleasure. Some of you think you figured out what he didn't do. And you can go do it. This is, some people will say, the drunk drawer, junk drawer of Solomon's quest. He did it all. He did everything. He's got everybody beat. He figured it out. He went after it. He did it. And you can't do it better. And here's what he said. This is the difficult part for church folk. This is the verse that generally gets skipped over a lot. He said, I went after all that my eyes desired and I did not keep anything from them and I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found what? What's it say? For my heart found pleasure in all of my toil and this was my reward for all of my toil. Do you know what he just said? He just said all that stuff all the houses, all the parks, all the orchards, all the wine, all the laughter, all the ladies, all the choirs, all the stuff, all the pursuit. I mean, it was actually fun. I mean, there was actually pleasure in it. It wasn't like a drudgery that I put myself under. There was actually joy to be found in it, some kind of pleasure there. It's the last thing we ever read in church. This is the opposite of what we're supposed to say. We're supposed to say that all those things will make you miserable. All those things have no joy in them at all. There's nothing fun to be found in any of those activities, and that's not what he said. He said, my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, in all those experiences, but it was just fleeting, momentary. His pursuit was after that which lasted, that which brought meaning that which brought identity, that which brought real and lasting joy. And he said it couldn't be found. It couldn't be found. Was it fun? Yeah, for a little while. But then it was done. Then it was over. There was no gain. Nothing to be left over from all of those things. He said in verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done, all of those things, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
all said and done, all those pursuits, all those accomplishments, all those experiences amounted to nothing more than a two-year-old chasing after all the bubbles in the wind, only to be popped in the air or popped as soon as I got a hold of them, leaving me frustrated and disappointed because I did not get what it was I thought I could find. It could not give me what I was looking for. Chasing after the wind. And we have this illusion, this deadly illusion, pumped down our throats 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year in this culture. Our heroes, right, are the ones with the biggest houses, the most stuff, the most fame, the most leisure, the largest crew. Those are the heroes in this culture, aren't they? Like Solomon, all of us pursue this illusion in varied ways. For some, it's one thing. For, for others, it's another. But all of us think that if we could just find this one thing, then, and then we'd be happy. Then we would be content. And whatever the pleasure is, whatever the pleasure is that you think you need, that you think you need to find, that you think will bring it to you when it's over, all you end up feeling is a deeper ache and a deeper need and a deeper sense of disappointment. Get the house. Go ahead. Go ahead and see if that can give you what it is you're really looking for. Get the car. Get the extra car. Get the extra car. Get the extra, extra car. Get the boat. Get the vacation house. Get the cars, get the clothes, get whatever you want. See, when it's all said and done, if it really brings what it is you're after. Sure, it'll be fun for a little bit. But when it's all said and done, you'll be left with the same disappointment that drives you to do it again. To find something different. To get something more. To go like Brady said in the beginning. There's got to be more than this. This can't be all that it's cracked up to be. That's what Solomon is saying. And you can get your 10-year plan, figure out what it'll look like to achieve the right goals so that you can be happy and successful. And I guarantee you, when you get there in 10 years, you have to come up with another one because it won't have fit the bill. It won't have fit the bill. You'll need something else. Holding on, I read this this week. It said, holding on to a good feeling is harder than holding on to a bubble in the wind, but it doesn't stop us from trying. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that what it all kind of settles down to in this pursuit? All of us are trying to hold on to grasp something, trying to chase after and get a hold of something, but we know it's not gonna do it. We know it's gonna disappoint. We can't stop. We can't stop trying. We can't stop trying to get our hands on it. And so here's where I'm sure that you have probably figured out what I'm going to say, um, where I should go, um, certain of what the Bible has to say about this pursuit of Solomon's and this illusion of pleasure. For some of you, you are just waiting for me to finally uncork on all that Solomon has done. And you're finally waiting for me to tell you exactly what you should do and shouldn't do. You're finally waiting for me to unleash on all of his pursuits and all of his drinking and all of his excitement and all of his joy. And for others of you who have been around here for a little while and know that we haven't done that in the past, are probably expecting me to do it now and you're ready to say, hmm, I thought this was all too good to be true. I knew it was coming. I knew he was finally gonna pick apart all of these things. And I knew it was all about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. 
That's not really the case. That's not really what the Bible has to say about things. Some of you are expecting me to say, if it tastes good, it'll probably give you cancer. If it feels good, it's probably immoral. If it's fun, it's probably dangerous. If it sounds good, it's probably superficial. Most importantly, if it brings you pleasure, it's probably unbiblical. It's probably unbiblical. That's what you're expecting. That would be the natural end to this text and this sermon, but that's not what the Bible has to say at all. Christianity is not the enemy of pleasure, especially the sensual ones. Did you know that? Christianity is not the enemy of pleasure, especially the sensual ones, the ones that appeal to our senses. You see, we're, we're supposed to be about the soul and the spirit, right? That's what's most important, the soul and the spirit, the body. That's just a trap for all those things. You've got to figure out how to get that body thing under control and subtract all the things from it and get the soul and the spirit right. That's Buddhist. Did you know that? That's Buddhist. That's not biblical. It's a different B. It's Buddha, not the Bible. God is not, as some say, the cosmic killjoy in the sky. Listen, God created you with this unbelievable capacity to touch and to feel and to smell and to hear and for those senses to be tied to your emotions and for those emotions to be tied to your soul and for your entire body to work holistically around these things. God is the one that created these senses. God is the one that created this sensual world around us. He's the one that gave us these great things to smell, these great things to touch, these great experiences to have in this created world. And you know what? When he did all of that, do you know what he said? He said it's good. He said it's good. Do you mean to really make you mad? I'll make you mad. I'll make some of you mad. I wasn't going to do this, but I think I should. Is it up there? Is Psalm 104 up on the screen? Did I give it to you? Oh, yeah. Psalm 104, 14 and 15. David's talking about God. He said, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen the man's heart. All of those things come from God. And do you know how weak we translate that word gladden and wine to gladden the heart of man that comes from God? Do you know how weak we translate that word? You know what that word actually means in Hebrew? In English, we would say it's a slight buzz that changes that emotion for a moment. David just said, from the hand of God, you gave us wine to gladden our hearts. You gave us this capacity to enjoy this created world in a way that we could experience and touch and taste and smell and feel. And you know what he said? In the way that he's talking about it, it's not just all right with God. He actually gave it to us. That's crazy for a lot of you. I know some of you just tune me out. Don't tune me out yet. Don't tune David out yet. Don't tune the Bible out yet. Don't tune him out. Listen, Ecclesiastes, it doesn't start with Solomon. It actually starts back in Genesis. To understand what he's saying about this, you've got to understand that God made this unbelievably amazing world and he made it in a way for us to experience it with all the senses and the feelings that he gave us. He gave us this thing to experience pleasure. 
He gave us this creation in the beginning to experience pleasure as a way of rolling that pleasure up in worship back to him. He gave us these senses in this world to experience that as we would smell something amazing, that as we would eat something amazing, as we would drink something amazing, as Adam and Eve would spend time together as a man and a wife, a husband and a wife together, that would roll up in worship towards God who gave them all that they were experiencing. The created order and the sensual pleasures and the senses of our body were meant to interact by God's grace and his purpose for us to enable, enable us to worship the creator. That's what it was for. That's why he created this world the way he did and he wired us the way he did. He wired us to experience that pleasure in his creation so that we can look to him as the creator, independence and satisfaction and worship him as a good God who gave us these things. Oh, what a, what a good God he is. But instead, Instead, we took our eyes and as we experienced the created order and we experienced what he had created for us, we kept our eyes focused on those things and no longer did we lift our eyes towards the creator in praise, but we focused our eyes on the creation. We said, how can I stick a big fat straw in that thing and suck out of it all the stuff that I think I need that I was supposed to get in satisfaction from God who gave it to me, but instead, let me see if I can get it out of this thing. And in the very beginning, Adam and Eve believed in illusion they believed an illusion about God. They believed a subtle lie that diluted this whole thing from the very beginning that we continue to believe. As the tempter came to them and said, look at this one thing God has told you that you shouldn't do. He twisted the thing and got them to see that as God's prohibition for their joy. God must be this cosmic killjoy in the sky who doesn't want you to experience this kind of pleasure because look what he did. He won't let you do this. And he deluded them into thinking that about God and this illusion was cast over man. And instead of looking at God and all that he gave us and all of his love and all of his mercy and all of his grace and all that he gave us to experience that would roll up in joy towards him, we believe that he was withholding something from us. And so we stick a big fat straw in that thing and we try to suck out of it everything that he had wired us to get from him. And to this very day, we live under this illusion that he must be keeping some kind of pleasure, joy away from us. There's something he's not letting us have and we're gonna focus on this creation. We're gonna focus on this world and we're gonna try to suck out of it everything that we can, missing all along the very thing that he created. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really sure when, when the church became the enemy of pleasure. I don't, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. I don't know when the church became the enemy of pleasure. Like all of a sudden, we were supposed to be the ones that champion dullness, that champion beige, that are knick-knocks from the imagination movers. That's big around our house. Just nothing, flat, lifeless. That's not how the story started. You realize that, don't you? You realize that's not how the story started. The story started with a man and a woman in a perfect, beautiful, luscious, sensual garden with no clothes on and a command to be fruitful and multiply. That was God's idea. You realize that, right? You laugh, you snicker. I'm not trying to be totally funny. You realize that, right? That was God's idea. That was the way he created this thing. We are the ones that began to believe that he was holding something out on us instead of seeking that satisfaction that could only come from him as the one who gave us these things. We have tried to pull all of that out of the things that he gave us. God is not the enemy of joy. 
God is not the enemy of pleasure, especially, especially the sensual ones. They were his idea from the beginning. But why then do we find so little satisfaction? This is how we'll we'll wrap this one up. Why then do we find so little satisfaction? Why in all the accomplishments and the achievements does Tom Brady think there's got to be more than this? And if you're really honest, you struggle with the same thing. Why is that the case? Listen to this. I was reading this this week from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, and I would commend this book to you mightily. Listen to what he said in the very beginning of the book. He said, after the global economic crisis began in the mid-2008, there followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hung himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families who lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, slid his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. office. A Danish senior executive with HSC Bank hung himself in the wardrobe of his 500-a-pound night suite in London. When a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by Morgan Chase, which had bought his collapsed firm, he overdosed on drugs and jumped from the 29th floor of his office building in Manhattan. A friend said that this Bear Stearns thing broke his spirit. It was grimly reminiscent of the suicides in the wake of the 1929 stock market crash. Listen to this. In the 1830s, when Alexis de Tocqueville recorded his famous observations on America, he noted a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. For all that can be said, for all that we do and all that we get in the abundance that we have, there is a strange melancholy that sits over all of us that sat in Solomon and said, this just isn't enough. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And what the scriptures say is that in spite of being created for pleasure, we find little satisfaction in all of it. In spite of being created to experience joy and pleasure, we find little lasting to no satisfaction and meaning in any of it. And it can never provide for us what we try to get out of it. Scriptures say that God gave us the capacity to enjoy all of these things, to find pleasure and joy in it, and to have intense and satisfying pleasures in it. But instead, we expressed our dissatisfaction by believing the lie about him. And as Paul will say in Romans, we exchanged joy and hope and satisfaction, satisfaction in the creator. And we put all of that hope, all of that joy, all of that search for satisfaction in the creation. A great exchange occurred in our hearts. And we no longer found ourselves satisfied by God. And we set out to find a way to satisfy ourselves through creation. And that decision in the beginning has set us on a treadmill of frustration and disappointment ever since. That is what has happened. We were created to worship God. We were created to find meaning and satisfaction in God. We were created by God to enjoy his creation in such a way that that creation would drive us and compel us to satisfaction in a greater thing in him. Our joy was meant to point us towards God. We were meant to worship him. Worship is not simply just an aspect of something we do when we gather together. 
Man, I don't think there's another thing that we can call it. I know people call stuff on Sunday celebration services and gathered services and try to figure out a way to call worship music different music. But in all honesty, the, the, the language really confuses us because worship is not just something that we do. And it's not just an adjective that goes to a particular type of music. Like music isn't worshipful if it doesn't say worship music in front of it. And then we don't really worship until we come to a worship service. And this person up here really is a worship leader because we need somebody to lead us into worship. No, the reality of the Bible says is that we were all wired by God to worship. Just like Chris talks about the church being an identity before it's an event, worship is an identity. We are, worship, we are worshipers. Bob Dylan got it right. You will serve somebody. You will worship something. And the story of the scriptures say that we were created to worship God, to find satisfaction in God, and that God wired us to find that satisfaction and experience that satisfaction in him. And he gave us this creation and this world that it might drive us towards him that we would enjoy it and find joy and be driven to him and satisfaction in him. Instead, we, we swapped it. We switched it. We exchanged it. We flipped the script on the whole story. And we find ourselves frustrated and claiming, Paul said, to be wise. Claiming to be wise in our pursuit. Claiming like Solomon to have all of our faculties and wisdom intact and to go and to get what we can get out of this life. Claiming to be wise, Paul said in Romans 1, and 23. In that great exchange, we end up being like fools. We end up looking like two-year-olds, chasing bubbles around in the wind, trying to catch them. Big 30, 40, 50, 60, 70-year-old acting like two-year-olds, running around after all these things in the, in the world, trying to get from them what they were never intended to give us, chasing them like bubbles, chasing them like bubbles. God created us to enjoy him, to enjoy his creation, and it was meant to drive us up in worship. Ecclesiastes, it's not here to offer a giant proof text in moralism. It is not here to be a giant book so I can say, don't do this, and don't do this, and don't do this, and this is bad, and this is bad, and this is bad. No, God said it was good. God said it was actually good. And I'm not here, and the Bible isn't here to be a proof text that you can set up all kinds of moral standards and values by which you can judge your life and lay burdens and millstones around the necks of other people. It's here. Ecclesiastes, this great story, is here, like the rest of the Bible, to revolutionize your worship. It's here to revolutionize your soul. It's not here to rearrange your rules. It's not here to recategorize your rules. It's here to absolutely revolutionize your heart and transform your worship. It's here to unmask the illusions. Remember what we said last week, in order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that does deceive. Part of this book, part of its purpose is to deconstruct the illusions. That we might lose the illusions that so easily rob us of joy. So easily rob us of the satisfaction and meaning that can be found only, only in God himself. That's part of the purpose of this book. And here's how we'll, we'll end it. In John 4, Jesus tells this great story famous story of the woman by the well. He tells this great story where he goes to Samaria and he's with his disciples and he's cutting through Samaria and he gets tired. And you don't cut through Samaria when you were a Jew. That was a despised place and a despised people, a dirty and outcast people. But Jesus led his disciples straight through Samaria. And when they got into Samaria, by in this, kind of the center of town by the well, he sent his disciples on to get some food for him and he sat down to take a break. And he did it intentionally. He sat down and take a break and he sat at the well with a lady who could only come to the well when nobody else was there because she was an outcast in the midst of an outcast society. 
And he sat down next to this lady and he asked her for a drink of water. He said, can you give me a drink of water? And she said, sure. And she got her pail, and this is a paraphrase, by the way. Um, he got her, she got her pail and she pulled up some water and she gave him a cup of water. And you know what he said? He said, if you knew who was asking you for, for water, you would have actually asked him for a drink. And she said, how is that? You don't even have a cup. You had to ask me for water. She missed the whole thing. Jesus goes on to talk to her about water a little bit more, and he tells her, that, tells her this, listen. He says, everyone, everyone who drinks the water from this well, they'll all be thirsty again. Everyone who keeps coming back to the same thing will ultimately be thirsty again, but everyone who drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty again. Everyone who drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty again. You can keep trying to suck meaning and purpose out of all the things in life, but you will go back to that well over and over and over again, only to find yourself thirsty again, again, and again. Only when we drink the water that he has offered will we find ourselves satisfied at the deepest levels. He, Jesus alone, is what we're looking for in this unbelievably cluttered land of illusions. He is what is real, what is eternal, what is lasting, and what is ultimately satisfying. We should live for nothing less than ultimate satisfaction and pleasure. That's what the Bible says. Here's the sum of Solomon's quest in chapter two. You should live for absolute satisfaction and joy and pleasure. That is okay. That is what you were wired for. Just don't settle so easily. Just don't settle so easily. You were meant to experience great joy and great pleasure in God, in God. But as C.S. Lewis said, we're all far too easily pleased. We should commit ourselves to the pursuit of pleasure and the pursuit of joy with everything in us. In the way my hero, John Piper, says, we should become a people of, who are Christian hedonists, who are given over to the pursuit of pleasure, given over to the pursuit of joy that's only to be found in God himself. Go after pleasure with everything you've got. Go after pleasure with everything that you've got. But don't settle. Don't settle for something that's so cheap. Don't settle for something that's so easy. Go after the only thing that can truly satisfy. Pursue God. Pursue Jesus. He's the one that gives lasting pleasure and lasting joy. Satisfaction is in him. And satisfied people don't need illusions. Satisfied people don't need illusions. I love my life. I love food. I love Spanish wine. Dark beer. Good fish. Good steak. I love my wife. I love my kids. But they're not my God. They're not my God. I can't find lasting meaning and purpose and satisfaction and joy in them alone. Go after joy. Go after satisfaction. Be satisfied in God because satisfied people don't need illusions. They don't need illusions. Illusions are for the dissatisfied. So go after satisfaction. Go after joy. Go after it with everything you've got. That's my prayer for us in this, that we would be a people who would pull that big straw out of, out of our pursuit of things in this life and we would find our joy in Jesus alone. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the way that you created us. Thank you for the way that you created this world. Thank you for the miracle of 
of joy and the capacity to have pleasure. Father, please forgive me and forgive us for settling too easily, for settling on things that could never give what we ever wanted, that could never give what it was we were looking for. Or let us be satisfied and let us be satisfied in you. Let us be satisfied in who you are for us in your son. Let us find lasting joy there. Let us find lasting peace there. Let us find pleasures forevermore, as your word says, from your right hand. Let us be a satisfied people in the midst of very unsatisfied people. Lord, and let that satisfaction that's in our lives spill out. And let it draw people towards you. Let it be the greatest witness that we have to Lord, your glory. Let our satisfaction in you be the greatest witness that we have to your greatness. We ask these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. Now is, is, is normal for us. Uh, we take a minute or two just to reflect, just to sit and be.